0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 non-profit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com.
1: Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic Book Lovers Unpacking Good Books, Chapter by Chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, where we continue to discuss Joseph Carl Ratzinger's The Spirit of Liturgy. Uh, I'm Father Pestio of Ignatius Press. This is Big and Deutero, also also Ignatius Press. Joseph Pierce, uh, our comrade in arms there. Uh, we are now on chapter four, part two. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger was a great teacher, and it showed in his writings, both as Pope and as, uh, as an author. Uh, and he, he's also very organized. So we've we're on part two. Part one, to remind you, is on the essence of the liturgy. It always begins with things which are fundamental. The essence, we talk about liturgy how is part of life, the church's life and our life. Liturgy, cosmos, and history. That theme we'll see again in these chapters. It's coming up that the liturgy inserts us into history, salvation history, and incarnation and the resurrection of Christ and crucifixion. But it also inserts into the cosmos, which was made, created for its return to God. Uh, and then the third chapter is from Old Testament and New. he always showing the continuity uh, in Revelation between the Old Testament and the New. Now on on part two, time and space. Well, the cosmos is what is time and space. Space-time, it's called, you know. But inside that space-time cosmos, there's also human history. So we can talk about. We've discussed already uh, liturgy related to time and space. We've talked about sacred places, the church, and then the altar. Now we're going to come to the reservation of the blessed sacrament, and this is uh, was a kind of neuralgic issue for some time. It may still be. Uh, <clears throat> Many churches now have restored the tabernacle to the center as opposed to putting it on the side or in another chapel or even sometimes of another building. And here he here is giving up his reasons why it should be the center of the church. So on page 99 of your one version, the new version might be page 85, he begins first uh, sentence. The church of the first millennium knew nothing of tabernacles. So he he accepts the argument of those who oppose having the blessed sacrament reserved or having adoration, uh, holy hours, and so on. He says, yes, you're right. For a thousand years, we didn't have tabernacles. Down ten lines. The tabernacle as sacred tent, this is in the Old Testament, as place of the shekinah, the presence, the glory, of the living God, developed in the second millennium. He refers to, if you want to say, to the decadence theory. So the theory is that, well, we never had a tabernacle, but of course in the Middle Ages we had all these accretions, and we lost the primitive purity and simplicity, and so the church became liturgically decadent. Again, he will, he will address face-on the harshest criticisms. Following page, uh towards the bottom there, he re- he references an important finding of Henri de Lubach, which is often misunderstood. I want to read this little section at the bottom because it's beautiful. This is a book by de-, de Lubac called Corpus Mysticum, the mystical body. And of course, what do we think of today when we think of mystical body? The church, right? And what do we think of when we talk about the real presence of the true body of Christ? We think of the Eucharist, right? Well, the Lebach went back into the history of the church and the fathers and the doctors of the church and found that they had just the reverse view. Listen to this. About the twin concepts of corpus mysticum, that is mystical body, and corpus verum, true body. In the vocabulary of the fathers, mysticum did not mean mystical in the modern sense, but rather pertained to the mystery, the sphere of the sacrament. By the way, the Greek word mysterion, which we translated as mystery is Latinized as sacramentum. Thus, the, the phrase corpus mysticum was used to express the sacramental body, that is, the Eucharist, the corporeal presence of Christ in the sacrament. According to the Fathers, that body is given to us so that we may be become the corpus verum, the real body of Christ, that is, the Church. Changes in the use of language and the forms of thought resulted in the reversal of these meanings. The sacrament was now addressed as the corpus verum, the true body, while well, the church was called the corpus mysticum, the mystical body. Mystical here meaning no longer sacrament, but mysterious. Hmm. I mean, the important thing though is that in a sense, interchangeable. It is one body, uh, the sacrament of Christ and the Eucharist and the church, that's the same body. Uh, and jump in anytime you want. I'm going to try and kind of give an overview of the chapter by quoting some of the key passages, <clears throat> page 102 or 88, uh, one of that paragraph at the top. Only the true body in the sacrament can build up the true body of the new city of God. This insight connects the two periods and provides our starting point. So he's going to show the relationship of the true body, and the mystical body, Eucharist and Church. Just below the middle of the page there, he's going to go in out of the criticism that, that arose during the liturgical movement. In the early days of the liturgical movement, people sometimes argued for a distinction between the thing centered view of the Eucharist in the patristic age and the personalistic view of the post medieval period. The Eucharistic presence, they said, was understood not as the presence of a person but the presence of a gift distinct from the person. What does he say to that? The mild-mannered Joseph Ratzinger. This is nonsense. Anyone reading the text will find there's no support anywhere for these ideas. So he cuts that one off of the knees. Next page above the middle, he's describing what actually happens. What happens in the Middle Ages is not a misunderstanding due to the losing sight of what is central, but a new dimension of the reality of Christianity, opening up through the experience of the saints, supported and illuminated by the reflection of the theologians. And this is an expression of how he views development in history of the church. Yes, there are Christians. Yes, there are mistakes. Yes, there are cultural additions that can be removed. But by and large, what is happening is, New dimensions are opened up through what? Through the saints, first of all, and then the reflection of the theologians. Continuing, Ratzinger. Here, At the same time, this new development is in complete continuity with what had always been believed hitherto. Let me say it again, says Ratzinger. This deepened awareness of faith is impelled by the knowledge that in the consecrated species, he emphasized, is there and remains there. When a man experiences this with every fiber of his heart and mind and senses, the consequence is inescapable. We must make a proper place for this presence. And so little by little, the tabernacle takes shape. And More and more, always in a spontaneous way, it takes the place previously occupied by the now disappeared Archive. Council. What a beautiful expression that is of the life of the church.
2: A couple of things, Father, on that, if if, if I may. Um, I, both of you can yawn ostentatiously, because obviously we've been doing this now for a few years and, and you know, I, I'm sure I'm repeating I know I'm repeating myself. But when, on the first page, when he talked about the decadence theory, I've never heard it called that before, uh, but the canonization of the early days and romanticism about the first century, I thought about this uh, metaphor i brought many times about Tolkien talking about the... Early church is the sapling, the and 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 the church today is the full-grown tree, and and you can't chop down the tree looking for the mm. sapling, the so-called purity of the early church. So this canonization of the early days and romanticism about the first century is being something which misunderstands the 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 continuum which the church is. And of course, he, I, he, he used the metaphor of a tree, but what uh, uh, Ratzinger is doing here is using uh, the metaphor of a person. Of course, of course the person of Jesus Christ, and when I was undergoing instruction to be received into the church, and I was saying to the, uh, the priest, you know, I, went, I I went sort of, I wanted solid truth, I didn't want any sort of modernism, mm-hmm. and I was saying, the church is a rock, you know, it's unchanging. And this holy priest, he, 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 he was a, he is a holy priest, Benedictine, uh, he said, yes, that's true, the, the, the church is a rock, the, the church is also a pilgrim. Um, and, and, and so that sort of, that threw me. Because it, it hit me with a sort of something which is paradoxical. It's both a rock and a pilgrim, something which is unchanged, but nonetheless moves. But it moves, of course, without changing in the essence, because it's the same person. The pilgrim is the same person moving through the two, the, the two millennia. So that made my, my rather static metaphor of the rock dynamic, and it was you know, very important to me. And I think that's what's happening here in that, in, in view of, of those images.
0: Well, what's interesting here, too, as far as movement, there's a going forward in order to go back. In other words, I always assumed that this tabernacle and all that had something to do with the Old Testament. And then it turns out, reading Ratzinger, that this development of understanding happened much later, that it wasn't like a direct continuum from Israel to the church and now to our time, that there was a time where this was... not not seen the way it is now, this connection. And that was what was so surprising to me.
2: Yeah, but he he does connect the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant. So so there is also, yeah, there's both. Like you say, there's this this walk and this pilgrim. Right,
0: but the pilgrim didn't just make a straight line from the tabernacle of the Old Testament to the tabernacle of the New Testament. There was a time when there was no tabernacle. And then when it was understood in the Middle Ages, it's interesting that he relates this somehow to the Franciscans. He doesn't really say what the connection is. Maybe you know, Father, what the connection with the Franciscans is. But nevertheless, that now this is oh yes, and that's right. There was a tabernacle, an ark, and a covenant, and all the rest he of it.
2: With the, the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, uh, but yeah, order yeah, yes, better than I could. But actually, that first paragraph of the chapter, it's not that the tabernacle emerges from nothing; it's taking the place, uh, or, or it emerges from. Uh, the uh, ciborium and the um, uh which uh, was in the place of the Shekinah which I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly which does connect if I understand it correctly to the Ark of the Covenant So yes. I don't think you're here. understanding
0: my point exactly because what I'm saying is that I always assumed that there was a direct line that there always were tabernacles in churches right. because right. of the Old Testament practice what I didn't realize was that the tabernacle in the church was a later development, but then they connected it to the earlier practice. Do you see? There was a time when there was not a direct step-by-step from tabernacle to well, tabernacle. I,
1: you're both right here in the sense that what he says here, the first page, is that in the early church, the altar itself with this baldachino was considered the, the tabernacle. That was the tent of God's presence. But that was only there as Mass was being celebrated. They would they would reserve the precious sacrament back in the sanctuary somewhere in a box or in a cabinet or whatever. But they didn't have a tabernacle as we know it as part of the church structure. But they did have something which was a continuation of the ark of the covenant, right. namely the church itself and the san- and the sanctuary. Right?
0: Because didn't the ark of the covenant have in it some of the manna from the desert?
1: It also had the, the, the you know, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Yeah. The Ten
0: Commandments and the manna, yeah. and so. I don't know. It's just interesting how these symbols, it's not like it's just a direct point by point by point by point that happens through time. It's kind of, well, what do pilgrims do, Joseph? They don't just take the most direct route necessarily. They're kind of, you know, meandering and wandering and I don't know. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Doudreau, and Joseph Pierce in
1: just a moment. Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen.
2: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support discerning hearts in a special way. Or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today.
0: We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Doudreau, and Joseph Pierce.
1: But I, I just, uh, I want to, uh, I agree with what you're saying, but I also want to make sure we don't leave people into this idea that, well, uh, real organic growth can be going back and picking up something which, which was just, you know, not useful and bringing it back. Uh, for example, the the Second uh, I it, Well, he it,
0: says right here that this new development is in complete continuity with what had always been believed. <laughs> So I right. would not want to suggest that this was I don't know and a, 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 like you what? say a going backwards and picking up something. It's in complete continuity. But I'm just saying I just always assumed there always was a tabernacle well, in a no, Christian I,
2: church. The so, so, so tabernacle is not an innovation, but like yeah. But the, the point is the thing which we see physically manifest as a tabernacle on the altar. Yes. Let's be to God now back on the altar, at least at the center. Uh, uh, of the sanctuary um that was not part of the church that particular physical thing but something yes. which represented the tabernacle which itself represented the ark of the covenant had always been manifest in some sense but not in the sense of what is we now recognize as a physical tabernacle
0: thank you i think that clarifies it beautifully
1: yes so it wasn't it, it wasn't a break no it wasn't a leap but it also wasn't continuous in the same form.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I think we all understand each other now. Thank oh, you. That, that's
1: good. Oh,
2: if, if I could be pedantic, I'm sorry. It, it is continuous in the same form, it's not in the same accidentals. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the essence was always there. Yeah, exactly.
2: That's the whole point, right? That but essence the was always manifestation there. changes.
0: Yes, yes.
1: We're going on to page 104 or 9. New paragraph there. So let no one say, quote, the Eucharist is for eating, not looking at, unquote. And I, that was quite common to hear that said.
0: Oh, my gosh. It was said after a Sunday Mass here in my parish in San Francisco. The pastor got up and literally in this booming voice said, the Eucharist is food and not something to be adored. And my... My uh, did you the, shoot him? No, but my older son, who was old enough to understand the time, he yanked my skirt and he said, mommy, is the priest right? <laughs> and, of course, I wasn't going to say the priest was wrong. So I just said, let's go home and look at the catechism and see what it is he's saying or not saying. And, and that's exactly what we did. So I didn't have to just. But, no, he said those exact words to an entire congregation of people.
1: And what is Raskin? in response. It is not, quote, ordinary bread, unquote, as the most ancient traditions constantly emphasize. Eating it, as we just said, is a spiritual process involving the whole man. Eating it means worshiping it, skipping a the lines. Thus, adoration is not opposed to communion, nor is it merely added to it. No, communion only reaches its true depths when it is supported and surrounded by adoration the Eucharistic presence in the tabernacle does not set another view of the Eucharist alongside or against the Eucharistic celebration, but simply signifies its complete fulfillment. So he's he's really a reconciler and a master of, of unity mm-hmm. here. He, he, he is, I mean, very strong when he rejects this uh, dichotomy they're trying to set up. Mm-hmm. In favor of what? In favor of recognizing the richness of of the, the symbols, the richness of the liturgy that, that, that unites these things. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, I feel I hear a personal echo here. When he said on page 103, uh, I recorded it, when a man experiences this, with every the, the crisis there, with every fiber of his heart and mind and senses, well, Who's that man? That man is you, uh, Conor Ratzinger, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And here at the bottom of page 104, slash 90, 10 lines up, he says, a church without Eucharistic presence is somehow dead, even when it invites people to pray. But a church in which the eternal light is burning before the tabernacle is always alive. There's always something more than a building made of stones. In this place, the Lord is always waiting for me, calling me, wanting to make me, quote, Eucharistic. What does that mean? It means thankful, but it also means sharing oneself. As Christ shares himself with us, we participate in his love, and we share ourselves with others. In this way, he prepares me for the Eucharist, sets me in motion towards his return.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, uh, Joseph, you probably had similar experiences being, well, were you always Catholic, but you came back? Or did you enter the church from the outside? That's what I thought. So, But in any case, entering the church from the outside, I mean, I could tell instantly when I was in a Catholic church that there was something different about the Catholic church. There was someone home. And I started looking for this light and realizing that it signified something alive, something waiting for me, something wanting me. I mean... That was before I knew anything about the doctrine of the real presence.
2: Yeah, when I was a child, and I mean, I mean, a child—I was probably, I'm guessing, about nine years old. There was a girlfriend, obviously not a girlfriend—you know, nine years old, a friend who was a girl. Uh, her name was Caroline, and she went through a phase of of wanting to to, to be a Catholic. Uh, who knows why or how? And I don't know what came of it. But she took me into the, the local Catholic church in the, in the small market town in England where I was living. And I the so first time I'd ever been to a, into a Catholic church, and it stuck with me forever. I went in there, I felt as if I'd walked in, walked through a wardrobe into a place of magic. Yes. Now, yeah, I suppose I could be mundane about it and say, well, it was because they're, unlike the Anglican churches i have been in, which have all been basically largely stripped bare, so they're beautiful on the outside because they're built in the Middle Ages, but inside they're very, you know, they look like museums. And this was a living place. Now you know, and I felt a presence which I would not have recognized as a nine-year-old with no no catechesis uh, as the real presence, the eucharistic presence. But certainly, when I came, when, when I began my journey in earnest towards the church, I recognized immediately that what I what I was missing was that real presence. And I and I experienced mm-hmm. it in the Catholic Church, and that
1: became the hunger. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you're right. The Anglican churches are beautiful on the outside, but that's because they got it from us. We we built the outside. Yes. The and they, they, they
2: were beautiful on the inside when they had the tabernacle and all the beautiful art, which was whitewashed or destroyed. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, I know several stories of people who later in life became Catholic, but as, as children had gone into the church, you know, like this one uh, Dagny, Dagny, you know, she's Danish. She was Carlos Swinburne's assistant in in Vienna. Uh, she was a little girl, and she, she walked into this church, and she was just – she had started kneeling down, and she just felt something, and she later became a Carmelite nun. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow yep, yep, uh which is another good reason to keep our churches open, yes, and to have a tabernacle in the center and have a light burning, yep, and to have a, and have stained glass windows when you when you go into the church, you realize that there's another world I'm entering here, you know,
0: and I just love the way uh Carmel ronsinger makes this personal. In this place, the Lord is always waiting for me. You know, that's really so beautiful and so true, and this is what you want to convey to people about your Catholic faith, is that the Lord is calling me, and I'm encountering Him, and we're in a love relationship together, and I just can't imagine anything more beautiful, whereas their view of the church is something other than that. Let's just say that.
1: (laughs) But again, that's where Chester says in Everlasting Man, is. the two best places to view the church are being inside her at the center or completely outside. Oh. If you're on the edges, you know, you don't understand the church and you, you're attacking her. And so I think this is kind of, this is symbolically true then. You want to be able to go into the inside of the church, actual where the sacrament is. So he concludes this chapter. Again, this is sort of a, a, uh, apology, in the, in the good sense, of defense of the Middle Ages. And Ratzinger is not a, is not one who's nostalgic in the sense of sentimentally attached to the past. Uh, he defends the Enlightenment.
0: Yes, he does. Uh, uh,
1: not entirely. He recognizes there's errors and problems, especially the, the de-Hellenization uh, of science and losing the transcendence, which he said in the beautiful address in Regensburg, in, 2012, but, uh, but here we see him expressing what is best about the Middle Ages. Bottom of the page, page 104, that new paragraph, just the last line, the changes in the Middle Ages brought losses. Okay. But they also provided a wonderful spiritual deepening. The unfold the magnitude of the mystery instituted at the Last Supper and enabled it to be experienced with a new fullness, a new fullness. How many saints, yes, including saints of the love of neighbor, that is the active saints, not the contemplatives, were nourished and led to the Lord by this experience. We must not lose this richness. If the presence of the, by the way, now this is is, is, is courteous language, but he's, he's addressing this to people who are taking the tabernacle away. Okay. Mm-hmm. We must not lose this richness. If the presence of the Lord is to touch us in a concrete way, the tabernacle must also be find its proper place in the architecture of our church buildings. Now, if people oh yeah, but look at St. Peter's that's the that's the typical church right in Rome. There's no tabernacle with the Preston sacrament in the center. It's on the side, you know, the side chapel. Well, that's right. It is. Why is that? Because ten thousand people are walking through every day to visit the place. Most of them not Catholics, or at least a lot of them not Catholics, and so. So those who want to pray can have a place to do so, you know. The-
2: it would be almost sacrilegious to have the tabernacle at center in St. Peter's because for most of the time, most people in there are purely Taurus, many of whom have no idea what the Blessed Sacrament is. Um, so you do need to reserve it in, in, a, in if you like, a, ta- a side tabernacle, um, which to, to ensure that it's treated with the reverence. Uh, an adoration that, 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 it, that it warrants commands and demands, and so that's exactly correct. In order, in, 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 for, in, in keeping with what Vasenka is saying here, you know, keeping the best of sacrament in reverence in that in that situation.
1: Well, this is a short chapter followed by a long chapter, so we should probably break. So why don't we break here, and we'll see all you in the next session on chapter five, Sacred Time. Thanks for watching or listening. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Form Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.agnatius.com.